0: the the topic that you see here when I had uh, asked Charlie what would you like me to present on and I gave him a few of the different options um, other than just doing a Bible study which I love to do I do those back home needless to say but these are the kind of things that I do at conferences and now this is becoming a big topic around the church now full disclosure it was the conference in 2008 at Marietta hot springs a senior pastors conference I was not a senior pastor at the time uh, but Jack my senior pastor had problems with his eyes and whatnot. so I got to be his seeing eye dog for the weekend best, best week of my life so I got to a chance to see uh, some things presented that were incredibly important but I I was oblivious to them I didn't realize that these things were taking place in the church so Jack had asked when we got back to look into these things that they may be presented to the church it was an eye-opener for me I had never looked into these things before and it was all because it was brought to my attention in 2008 or I may very well be oblivious to all of what I'm about to present to you but once you see it and once you're able to identify it then every time and and every time that, that something new is introduced it becomes obvious that there's something that's odd going on in the church, and I want to show you uh, some examples of that just so that you're aware of it, so that you're able to identify it. Let's be able, hopefully, to be able to agree on this. The devil is really subtle, and that he never takes a day off. Can we agree? So for those people who who would really mock what we do here, that I would propose to you that there is incredible corruption making its way into the church for anyone who would want to argue that i would want to point out a couple of things take a look at jesus's survey of the seven churches in revelation that's before the end of the first century so just using simple math maybe 60 years after his resurrection five of the seven churches in asia minor are in all kinds of trouble some of them are in full-blown apostasy Look at what Paul was having to do in his writing back to the churches within a decade, sometimes even less than that, from when he was there telling them about the error that was already making its way into the church. If it was happening a decade or even six decades after Jesus' resurrection to think it's not happening 2,000 years later is to stick your head in the sand and completely dismiss the devil's ability to do that stuff that he does. So what I will present to you, I, I say back home when I do this, My apologies to you, because it's like drinking from a fire hose, because it comes at you really fast. There's a lot of information here, but if you have any questions, I'll take as much time as you want and be happy to explain anything that you see here tonight. The last thing, too, I will mention some of the people that are doing these things, and trust me when I say this, it is not personal. When I point out these people, I only do so for one reason, and that's to make you aware of who they are because the day will come when they'll be removed from the scene and nobody will even know them by name, but if you can identify what they teach, that's the important part, so once they're gone from the scene, what they teach will continue on and I think you'll be able to see that as well, so as we look at the, the, the slides here let's have a word of prayer and we'll pray that technically everything goes as it's supposed to and that I can stay on time without, without speaking so fast that you can't understand me, okay so we'll try all that Father, we thank you as we come to this place. Our desire, Lord, is not to become expert in these things, rather that we would be expert in your word and be able to identify these things by just knowing a little bit about them and that we might be, as your word tells us, as Jesus taught us and instructed us that we would be wise as serpents and yet gentle as doves, that we would recognize that we have a very real enemy and he has a way of doing the things that he does, but the church must be aware. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what is said. We give you thanks and all praise in Jesus' name. Amen? So here is the the premise of this. It is amazing to me as I get a chance to go around the country and as I read things put out by pastors, quote-unquote pastors and churches, and when you hear the things that they say, you think, where have I heard that before? And you'll say, I hear that in the political side of it but the stuff that's more left of center. So there are things being championed inside the church that have no business being championed inside the church. Things that the Bible speaks about that we should be against are now being accepted in the church. And even if you don't spend a lot of time looking through these things, you know that there are some problems that are being advocated for in the church today. Are we in agreement with this? So. Well, I'm going to give you some examples of that, but probably let you in on a few of the people who are doing it, but to give you some of the methodology behind it. So as we look at this, how did we get here? And here's a very simple answer. This is rule number one that you see in there, and this is my rule. Uh, bad eschatology breeds bad doctrine. What do I mean by that? Your eschatology means what do you believe is going to be happening in the end of things? How do things wind up? What, you know, how does that all work? If that's wrong, then it's going to lead to all kinds of really horrible doctrine. Let me give you just a quick example of this. We as Christians would believe that God is incredibly merciful and loving and gracious and all the rest of that. We're agreed on this, correct? But does that mean that because he's loving and gracious and merciful that there isn't going to be a judgment for sin? Of course, we would say, well, no, he's all of those things, but he's also perfect and righteous and he's a just judge. So for those people that would reject his mercy and his love and his grace, what happens with them? And then when he does what he's going to do, when does that happen? And so we begin to study eschatology, the study of end things. Now because of that, we would say we believe. I know I can speak for Charlie and us. We believe that the rapture is the next real big event that's going to happen, and we can look at a dozen or dozens plural, of different. Places where we can say, here's something that's taking place, and yeah, it's happened through history, but it's happening in unprecedented ways. And oh, by the way, there's this place now called Israel that you can visit that wasn't there prior to 48. The land was there, but the government wasn't, and God wasn't beginning that reestablishing of His people in their ancestral land. So that's just one of dozens that I could I could point to. So because of that, we look at that as our eschatology and say, well, that explains. A little bit about why we are where we are and what's going on. And that gets a lot of attention. Israel, the things that are going on in Europe and all those kind of things. Here's what doesn't get talked about very often when we talk about eschatology. The condition of the church. The church does not get mentioned much. But look at how much is written about the church and the problems that will come into the church in the end times. How often do we hear Paul say, know this that in the last days... And he goes to give, and I'll look at a couple of those verses with you tonight, but he was giving that caution, and some of his most poignant cautions were to Titus and to Timothy. These were pastors. Make sure that you, you pastors, know about these things, and make sure that you are aware of them, and make sure that you warn your people. And last thing before we go on from this, I get this from pastors that I'll hear them talk about these types of topics and they'll say, you got to quit worrying about eschatology. It's really not something that you can know the timing and it's not important and all the rest of it. I'm going to give you a, a passage for you to look up on your own. I don't have it here, but it is, you can do it on your own. You just write it down, but it is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's the first verses, first couple of verses. But he says, now, as to the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord is judgment, right? He's dealt with the rapture of the church in chapter 4. And he just ends chapter 4 at verse 18 by saying, Now comfort one another with these words. What did he say in verse 17? That we who are alive will be harpazoed, raptured, taken away, and meet those who have died in the air to be with Jesus, and we will ever be with him, right? Now comfort one another with these words. That's comfort. That's, that's good news, What does he say about the day of the Lord? He turns his attention in chapter 5 to wrath. And know what he says about it. When you read it, he says this. You don't need me to tell you these things because you know these things perfectly. That may not seem like a big deal. How old was the church at Thessalonica when, when Paul left it? Basically a month old. How could a church that's only a month old and the people inside that church know eschatology so well that Paul says, you don't need me to remind you that you know these things perfectly. He was able to teach them perfectly eschatology in a month. And now we have people today saying, don't waste your time on it. It's stuff we're not supposed to know about. Perhaps Paul didn't get their memo. Think about it. So, bad eschatology is going to lead to all kinds of bad doctrine. How did we get here? And again, this is a very simple answer. It is the same problem that has been around since the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, hath God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I think we're going to try to do this without glasses. Here's the problem that is happening today, and it happened at the beginning, and it is because the devil loves this. Is that really what God meant when he said that? It's casting doubt on the the truth and the authority of the word of God. So every problem, and I mean every problem that you will find in the church, has this as the genesis, if you'll pardon the expression. This is where it begins, that the devil says, is that really what God meant? So the moment that you can undermine the Bible and its authority, you undermine everything that it teaches, and you leave it open to the individual to determine what they want to believe and not believe. Therein lies the problem. So, the infiltration in the last century, this has been taking place, I would recommend a book to you. It was written by Paul Smith, Pastor Chuck's uh, brother. You may very well know of it, but it's called The New Evangelicalism, or The New Evangelicals, rather, uh, The New World Order. And so he goes through and chronicles over the last hundred years, roughly, how these things began the infiltration into the church and really hit their stride in the second half of last century. So what we're examining tonight is nothing new. It takes a very long time to implement, but let's remember the devil has got all kinds of time on his hand for now. So he doesn't have to do everything all at once. He does it incrementally. And this is why the church has been on this downward spiral for so long. Well, look at what is said here, and it's a good indication of what happens to a church who begin to fall away from this. Now remember, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, so it's pastor to pastor elder pastor to younger pastor the one by the time second timothy rolls around this is the end of paul's life and now he's given the caution to timothy notice how he says it but notice that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves and we know the rest of them so lovers of money and then he gives this litany of attributes that people will have a lot of times when you hear studies on this they will go to people whoever's teaching on this We'll go to examples of all of these different things. What you've noticed that I've underlined here is that they're lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. That tells you why they do the things in between. Now he says, you want to know what it's going to look like before the end comes? Now remember, this is in the church. It's in the church. How do we know that? Because we see how it ends. But if you want to know the problem with it, men have become lovers of themselves more than they are lovers of God. Therefore, they're going to be lovers of money and unthankful and all the other things that are said. Now, if we want to look at the outside of the church, that's fine. We can do that. But look at what's in yellow there at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. So they will be people inside the church who because they don't have a love for God and rather a love for themselves, if they're the pastors in the churches that are, that are putting out the stuff I'm showing you tonight... They don't care about the people in the pews as much from the pastoral side to teach them the word of God. They are a means to an end, and they have an agenda, which you will see. And it is, the, the agenda is ultimately to give people the ability to identify with something. Well, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Okay, great. I'm glad that you go to church. Well, I pay my tithe, too. Glad to hear that, too. I, I pray. Great. Do outreach. Fine. Go all around the world and make sandwiches and give them blankets. Excellent. Glad to hear that you do all of that. But how about your discipleship? How do you do with people growing in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by knowing the word? That's where it begins to fall apart. Why? Because the same devil that said, hath God said, has said to those churches and those pastors, hath God said get busy on all the external things, neglect the internal. Let me give you one other to look at. I don't think it's in this presentation, but as an evidence of that, and I love to be able to say this in this because I know what what your pastor does. I know his view of the scripture. If you take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, very simply, it says this, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And then within a few verses, it gives you even more detail, but then it is in... In prayers and in fellowship, in breaking of bread, house to house, they had fellowship one with another. But it was predicated on one thing first. It was based upon the doctrine of the apostles. Jesus taught those men, those men taught the church. They passed along what was true, recognizable doctrine, what you believe. And then they did all of those other things. Now, you may very well have gone to other churches, maybe you have friends that go to other churches, and you see what the emphasis is, it's on all the things other than the Apostles' Doctrine. It is on the fellowship, it is on the prayers, it is on all the external things. But without the Word of God, there's no real context for any of those things. So it is a, a lopsided kind of way of doing things, and you will find in those churches they are biblically illiterate. They don't understand what it is that they believe. You can ask them even basic questions, and they cannot answer them. But they can tell you about all the external things. Well, remember, this is is Paul speaking to Timothy about these things. One last part on that whole thing of doctrine. There are several words that we we take from the Greek and and translate them as doctrine. One of them that, that is used in Greek is didaskalia. Didaskalia is used 21 times in the New Testament. It is used twice as Jesus, and he's quoting from Isaiah 29, where he says that you teach as doctrine the traditions of men. That leaves 19 usages, and they're all used by Paul. And so didascalia or doctrine, those things that are taught, he mentions four of them, like two to Ephesians, one to Colossians, one to Philippians. The other 15 times that he uses that, he uses it to Timothy or to Titus. Titus, Timothy, pay attention to your doctrine. Know your doctrine. Teach your doctrine to the people. Why? Because it is the only thing that will help them not to fall into the trap that is being laid for the church. So the emphasis on doctrine, and I've had pastors tell me, we don't spend so much time on doctrine because it divides people. To which I want to say, of course it does. It's intended to. Because this is what we believe based upon what the Bible teaches. You're free to reject it. That's fine. But we have to know what it is that we believe because it is foundational to our faith. And I'm going to show you how that is attacked inside the, quote, church. So, the infiltration that's happened in the last century. Here's the question that I put out right at the beginning. What is political versus the religious left? Now, we know what the political left looks like, and we know what they advocate for. It's the changing of norms within marriage. It is abortion on demand. We know what they're looking to do. It becomes global. There are no real standards because everyone has their ability to have their own opinion about things. And I know that I'm I'm looking at a group of people in this church that most of you are somewhere, give or take 10 or 15 years, about my age. Did you ever think the day would come when people would be able to identify however they want to as far as their gender is concerned? And now, that's not only accepted, but it is, don't you dare question anybody who wants to. It's not for you to question. Well, a simple DNA test will fix that in a heartbeat, but you can't say that. Now, it is the lowering and the removal of standards that's been going on for some time now, and it is the church... That is getting into trouble by saying, are you out of your mind? This is so obvious. Of course we know gender. But you can't do that. And much of the church is changing even that definition and embracing that belief system. So they can call themselves a church, but they're outside of what is accepted Christianity. So we know what the political left looks like. Now when we see it infiltrating the church, it helps us to understand, well, where did that nonsense come from? The people bring it into the church. So... I know that if the devil was to try to show up at the front door here, coming in as anyone else, you guys would shut the door on him. But I can tell you that because of trying to be acceptable to the world, that there are some churches that will throw the door wide open to him and not be judgmental because, you know, we want to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table. That may be an overstatement, but we certainly are able to see the influence of the devil come into the church because it's beginning to accept the same things that the secular world believes. And it's hard to tell where one ends and the other one begins. It's happening all around us, I will have examples of it. Can these two things agree in, or can these two things abide in agreement biblically? The simple answer is of course not, it can't. How can something that is detestable to God be acceptable to the church? No way should that ever happen. How then does it find its way in? We quit teaching the scriptures as authoritative, and that it it speaks on all matters of faith. Once you undermine that, you undermine everything about the church. So again, why or why not? What are some of the examples that you'll see? In the church, you're finding moral relativity, that nobody can say what's right or wrong. Everything is moral, or anything moral is relative. It depends on what's going on down the street. There's no standard is the problem. So where does that come from? It's a questioning about the inerrancy of scripture. It has its problems. It has its. How many times have you had people come to you and say, I can't believe the Bible is written by men and it's full of contradictions? How many of you heard that? Go ahead. It's audience participation. So, well, the rest of you, I'm surprised. Because that is the go-to thing, and then when you say to people, well, first of all, can you show me where those discrepancies are and where the contradictions are, and why does it matter that it was written by men if we believe that it's supernatural in its origin? Because half of the time that argument comes from people who are professing Christians. So there is the attack against absolute truth and even how we would know knowledge and how knowledge is gained. So where does this come from? Where are these these worldviews thriving now? Now I know that this kind of gets people a little bit on edge because it starts to bring into question some of the church movements that we see around us. But if I was to take a look and try to put these in segments, we know what we've we've heard the seeker-sensitive movement. We know what that is, right? The seeker-sensitive movement is to say we want the people to not feel in any way uncomfortable when they come in the door. So we want to make the churches sensitive to the person who is seeking to come in the door. And so they will tell you that they're very careful about focusing on evangelism. Okay, great. I'm glad. Evangelism. Great. If I wasn't evangelized, I wouldn't be here in front of you. So I'm, I'm all for it. But if we look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, that's where we get that God has given to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. But if we study the early church, the prophets and the evangelists and the apostles for the most part were doing most of their work outside of the church where evangelism would take place. What was going on inside the church? Pastors and teachers were teaching doctrine to the church so that they would be equipped to go out and do that work of evangelism and those other things. We have turned that completely on its head. Now we want the church to invite people in and make it feel like the outside, where they don't feel at all threatened, and everything is about evangelism and easy messages, right? We see that happening all the time, but what happens to the believers in there? Doctrine is no longer being taught, and they're being starved systematically of the truth of the word of God. Where did this all go wrong? Because it doesn't look like the first century church any longer. looks nothing like it. So this is the open door in the seeker-sensitive movement. Now, you hear this word thrown out all the time, postmodern, what we would call the emergent Christianity. And this is where you get the the guys with all of the PhDs, and these are the smart guys. These are the ones that are using all the 25-cent words that nobody knows. right? I'm going to give you some examples of those and put them in, in just simple English. The social justice, or what we call the liberation movements, these are the people that are out doing the, the work of trying to bring people into the belief system. And I'll give you an example of one of the biggest movements that there is out there that most of you have never heard of. And the gathering, the gathering for these postmodern groups, where do they outreach and where do they meet together other than just their churches? I'm going to show you some of those places. So where do these things happen? Most of you are familiar with some of I'm sure you're familiar with some of these, the saddleback or the purpose-driven model. Uh, this is where I come from Rick Warren is real close to me and again I don't know Rick personally he may be a great guy I would say though between the book that he wrote and the churches that have come out of it has done as much harm to Christianity as I can imagine because it's made Christianity very easy to believe but it really requires nothing of the person hearing it a person that I said this to once was going there and they were so angry at me and I had asked Well, how much instruction happens for the people that are there where you get into the Word and you are really taught and instructed in the Word of God by the Holy Spirit? And the look was really kind of odd. And then I asked a second question. Have you, because we always realize as pastors that though we want to instruct the the people that are in front of us, there is the potential that somebody may come in the door and they don't know who the Lord is and they're going to hear what we have to say. Is there a clear presentation of the gospel that if they walked in the door, unsaved, that they would have enough to be able to walk out the door as a saved person? And when I asked that question, does that happen every time that you guys are assembled? And she finally had to, had to admit, well, no, that doesn't. And that was my point, exactly. That's the problem. And that's being exported all over the place. One that you might not know quite as much is the Willow Creek model. There's a church called Willow Creek Community Church. It's up outside of Chicago. Maybe you've heard about a guy named Bill Hybels. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> the man had 14,000 churches at one time buying the product of how to build a church after that model. And they all had the same things. Be careful about how you say what you say over the pulpit. Don't take a collection Make sure that there's nice lights. Make sure that it's entertaining. Make sure that the music is entertain you know entertaining kind of a thing. Don't make people feel put off. Great. He actually, before he was found out to be kind of a kind of a um, had his indiscretions, let's say, and uh, he was found out to be not quite the man that he was uh, putting himself out there to be. He even admitted the models kind of failed because we're not producing disciples like we should, but we're producing a lot of carnal people who don't really hold to the Word of God any longer. Well, if we see this, this it's program-oriented church, they all look the same. You go there, they will have their hour and a half worth of a service or an hour and 15 minutes, but the time that is actually dedicated to the Word of God is very minimal, and the depth of it is superficial. Very little instruction goes on. But ask the people that go to him, what do you like so much about it? Man, the music is awesome. The guy tells great stories. It's very humorous. They would show these wonderful videos that really help to illustrate the points that they're doing. You want to say, but what did you learn from the Bible when you were there? And it's deer in the headlights. That is not what the first century church looked like because the first century church being part of it may very well have cost you your life. It wasn't an easy kind of belief. Read the history of it. I mean, read the history. Read Acts chapter 8, if that's all that you're going to read. It says, Paul wreaked havoc, Saul wreaked havoc in the church, and they scattered everywhere except for the apostles. Can you imagine if you you were trying to take the first century model, and everybody that walked in your church, say, I'm going to present the gospel to you, and if you were to come forward and you were to give your life to Jesus, we are so glad, but we want you to realize that it may cost you your life by the end of the day. How many of them would stick around? How many would stick around? Simple question. I try to think about all of these types of churches and try to plop them on the Mount of Olives in 50 A.D. and wonder how long they would last. The end of the day, the end of the week, maybe. They'd be persecuted into oblivion because it wouldn't be that easy to identify with Christianity, certainly not the model that they did. So. The topical approach from the pulpit, tell people what they want to hear, philosophical, me-centered kind of teaching, avoiding of difficult doctrine and theology, and then ecumenism. We're no better than anyone else. We all have the same truths. And yet when you start to ask the questions about what does that mean, they don't know how to even answer it. It's slogans, it's bumper stickers. But there's no way that they can ever really describe what goes on in the church. Now again, this isn't personal with me. I don't even care who these people are. That's not the issue. I don't know any of them personally. But I do want to have everything that they do examined, just like I tell my church back home or the church that I pastor, hey, whatever you hear from me, you take it against the authority of the word of God by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and you check those things to see if they're right. That is what Paul admonished, and actually didn't admonish. He, He said of the Bereans how noble it was. That they checked the scripture, they heard everything with all readiness of heart, and then they searched the scripture to see that those things were so. That, my friends, is a healthy church. Now you don't ever question Charlie, he's the exception to that. Uh, The the philosophy and theology of postmodern, or what we call the emergent church, how many of you have heard the term? How many can define it? It's like nailing jello to a wall, isn't it? Not easy, we're going to try to do that for you. Let me put two things in two different categories. Some people will say emergent, others will say emerging. You heard that? And they think that they're kind of interchangeable. For what we're talking about tonight, the emerging church are those people that are saying, well, we don't disagree doctrinally, but we want church to be done a different way, and we want people to come in, and we want this, that, and the other thing, but they won't compromise doctrine. When you say emergent, like some of the ones that I'll give you examples of tonight, they are rewriting the scripture And I don't care how they identify themselves by what they teach and what they believe they are not born again. And you can prove it. So, here are the the major points. They will question the source of truth. They use this big 25 cent word, epistemology. I'm going to use their words. Approach to the study of the Bible. They take what is called a deconstructionist view. Again, big fancy word, but I'll define it for you. And what it ultimately is, deconstruction teaches this. It removes the teaching of absolutes. And it's one of my favorite little exercises. When you talk with one of these people and you finally get it out there that they don't believe in the absolute authority of the Bible, well, you know, we can't know, so we can't speak in absolutes. The Bible should not be taken absolutely. What would you say to that? Here's the great way to reply. Are you absolutely sure of that? Think about it. So if there are no absolutes, how can you be so absolutely sure that there are no absolutes? You just kind of take it and put it back on them to explain yourself. They're not used to explaining themselves. They read it on a blog somewhere. So it's the removing of the the learning about prophecy. Prophecy is not only not emphasized, it is de-emphasized and it is shunned and moved away. There's the undermining of the Genesis record, where you came from. There is the undermining of the Revelation record. That God is a just judge and that there is an end of things. And then it is also the removing of the need of repentance and sin. If you don't believe me, I don't say plant yourself in that church. You don't want to be there. Watch what they put online. You can watch their messages if you have that much time on your hands. And if you do, I would have to say, how did you come up with it? But that's another, another question for another time. And then the opinion makers. Here are a few that I'm going to give you as examples and there are others. Here are some, some names that I really thought had gone away. And now some of them have come back. Now, the first two, Brian McLaren and Tony Campola, they never kind of went away. But here's something that I noticed: The devil's pretty good about when somebody becomes very noticeable, but they do something really off the wall, he'll move them off of the stage for a while. Sometimes he'll bring them back. A great example of that is a guy named Rob Bell. How many of you know who Rob Bell is? Does that name sound familiar? Wow. Well, he was all the rage, 2006, 2007. Some Calvary chapels were selling his books. He's a full-blown universalist and palling around with Oprah Winfrey now. If that doesn't tell you anything, I don't know what will. So questioning the source of truth. Epistemology very simply means this. If you don't remember all of these terms, or if you just write them down real quick, when you hear them said, this is very simply what it means. Epistemology, it's the philosophy or the theory of knowledge. It involves views of how knowledge is obtained, what knowledge is and what qualifies or doesn't qualify as genuine knowledge or truth. That doesn't really help even that. Here's what that means. How did you come to a decision on what you believe? When you say, I believe that the Bible's the truth, well, how'd you determine that? Well, because we believe that God is trustworthy and demonstrably so. He said something would happen, it happened. He said he did it this way, there's evidence that he did it that way. We can prove To our own understanding and our own belief that what he has said is worthy of trust. So how do we come to our belief in truth? Basically from the Bible. We believe it because it makes some very exact statements and they're always able to be backed up. He's never failed. So for this philosophy in the world, anybody can say, I believe this is the truth, but it's based on what my personal feelings are, and my truth is just as important as yours. Have you heard those kind of arguments in the world? So there's no standard. Does, it, does that help you to understand why so many things that we have always believed for generations are now being questioned and you can't even say anything against it? Epistemology has taken a complete beating in society where no one can say your truth is greater than anyone else's. So, it leads to this view in the church it's what they call deconstructionism and it's it's a again one of those fancy words but this is what it means it's a theory of criticism and i'm not going to read all of this but here is at the heart of it this is from one of these guys who believes in this and let me point out where the real danger is if you come to a scripture and you're reading something we are able to say, we got a pretty good idea. We know where it was. We know who the audience was. We knew what the problems were that were going on. We knew why the arguments, arguments were made by the author. And we were able to put the pieces all together. And we're able to understand it. Now, we deconstruct the scripture when we, when we start to take it apart and understand it. And so you, you watch, here's the funny thing about it. You'll watch your pastor do this every time that you guys are together. But he never makes a big deal out of it. He'll tell you who the person was that was writing, when they wrote, why they wrote, what was going on. He'll give you all the backstory to it so that you can have a good understanding of why the argument is being made. Now, here's what they would say about it. The heart of deconstructionism, look at the underlined in the yellow. The heart of deconstructionism is the idea that you cannot get at or know the intention of an author when he or she wrote a particular text. And there is no fixed meaning of any thing that is written any text that is because there are no identities there are no meanings and like anything else they always change they are subject to what each reader brings to the text so deconstructionism causes people to question everything and when we do that we often find that behind the scenes what really is motivating some viewpoint is power That is a comment about the Bible written by a person that's a deconstructionist. It's still a lot of words. Let me make it simple. You don't know who those people are. You can't question them. You can't ask questions of them. You weren't there, so don't go to your absolutes. You can't prove it. Besides, they said what they said just because they wanted power anyway. So you're able to read your own truth into it. And this is what is happening If you ever ever wonder why do things get said in churches like they get said, the pastors and the people are taking this view of the scripture. There's no fixed meaning to anything. You can't be, have you heard the word dogmatic? You can't be dogmatic. Hey, if people have ever called you narrow-minded as a Christian, has anybody ever had that one thrown at you? You're so narrow-minded. I hope all of you have and you just don't like raising your hand when you're asked a question in church. That's what I'm hoping. My answer to that is that you don't know the half of it. I'm incredibly narrow-minded, and I have, no, I have no problems admitting it. My mind is narrowed to this. There is only one authority who has ever existed. His name is God. We know him as God. His son Jesus came and died on a cross and left us a lot of information and inspired writers for 1,500 years to write the same narrative through the ages. And it is the only way that we will possibly ever come to any understanding of what is true. Because he's eternal. That makes me narrow-minded. Fine. Fine. I'll wear the label. Here's one of those guys I mentioned, Brian McLaren. Look at what he says. Now this is with, without putting words in your mouth, let me assume that everyone in here looks at the Bible as authority. You live your life based upon what you see. This man was identified as one of the top 25 evangelicals in the world in Time magazine the last time that they did that kind of a thing. This is a guy who writes books and influences more people than you, could have, you, you have any idea of. I don't suppose that Charlie has a single one of his books. I think I have two of them, and I always buy this stuff for research and hate myself for doing it, by the way. But I want to know what these guys teach, and this is one of the books that I actually have, The, uh, the Emergent Manifesto of Hope. Here's what he said in that. Meanwhile, some well-intentioned folk have reduced the whole conversation about modernity and post-modernity to an oversimplified and unnuanced argument about epistemology. By the way, nobody talks like this. Nobody talks like this. But let me tell you what he just said there. You, the well-intentioned folk, you people, right? We're trying to explain the world in which we live, modern versus post-modern, okay? So they want it to be an oversimplified and you, the unnuanced, we can't read between the lines. We don't have the secret decoder ring to read the Bible in a deconstructionist kind of a view. He's smarter than all the rest of us. We're the unnuanced, unwashed masses. And we have an unnuanced argument about epistemology. What we believe. How did we come to our truth? Right? Now he's writing this book for the masses, and this thing sold quite well. And people were able to read this kind of stuff. He is doing what most real brainiac kind of people do this. He is mocking you to your face and making you just nod along because you don't want to say, what's epistemology? What is unnuanced? We don't want to seem dumb, so we're not asking questions. So, look who knows what he said. For these sincere people, at least he throws us that bone. Well, they're sincere, but they're unnuanced and they're... You know, it's oversimplified, we're well-intentioned. Basically, you're just low-IQ people because you're questioning him. Look at this. I get the feeling that, oh, I'm sorry, for these sincere people, truth is an open and shut black and white case. Yeah? You want me to disagree with this? Okay, well, let's go on. I get the feeling that I either hold their simple uh, common-sense view of epistemology with the attendant understandings of such things as foundationalism, the correspondence theory of truth and so on. Again, he throws out more and more of these words. Foundationalism is, well, what's the basis for all of your belief? The Bible. Oh, well that makes you well-intentioned, sincere, and unnuanced. but come on. You're not like me. He's got, a, he's got the alphabet soup after his name. He's had it all of his education. Hey, I can go to any community college and find a guy with alphabet soup after his name that'll tell me I evolved from apes. That doesn't make him right. It means he gave him what he needed to give them in order to get his alphabet soup after his name. His PhDs, his, you know, MDivs and all the rest of that nonsense. Fine. We have a common friend, maybe he's even been here, uh, Xavier Reese. You know, Rawls' brother Xavier. He said guys like that have their education that has exceeded their intellect. <laughs> so <laughs> So anyway, here's what he says. Look, I have to either accept their common sense view of God said it, I believe it, it's in the word, and he's the only one who was there, so he's trustworthy. He's mocking that, and he says, now if I don't believe that, he says, I've abandoned the truth entirely. Or short of that, I'm sliding blindly down the slippery slope that leads to hot places. Amen, you are, Brian. If you do not repent, you will die in your sin because you do not believe in the absolute truth of the Scripture. So you will have your unnuanced way. This is the man who said that if we believe what the Bible says and like what we would teach about that Jesus died on behalf of mankind's sin, then we believe in a God that was into, into uh, brutality and child abuse because he had his own son put to death. He mocks the idea of substitutionary atonement. And he's an evangelical, quote-unquote, nonsense. So his new paradigm... So he says, now we have to forge a historic convergence of Christians from the West with our sisters and brothers from the global South and the East to the descendants of the colonized who are beginning to articulate the gospel in their own idioms. It means an expression or a style. Okay, maybe words, but not the gospel. The gospel is a hard and fast truth. It is not manipulated. It cannot be manipulated. It is or it is not. Jesus was perfect Son of God, he was perfectly God, he was perfectly man. He died for the sin of mankind, and unless you repent and accept his gift of forgiveness, you will die in your sin. There is no idiom that can be expressed that changes that. But when you see him, again, if you don't have any objective way of knowing truth, if there is no way to nail it down and make it absolutely knowable and true, then you can express it any way that you want to because there is no standard. You see what's going on here? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you that this is most of the church in America. Let me go one step further, and I know this shocks people when I say it. If the rapture were to happen right now, most churches would be open Sunday morning like nothing ever happened. We live on a planet with over 7 billion people. The church that will be taken at the rapture, which I believe is very soon to happen, will be a statistical anomaly relative to the whole. I also believe there will be all kinds of things taking place around the same time that will make it easy to explain away a handful of people relative to the population that are gone somewhere. Imagine if the Ezekiel uh, prophecy happened right around the time of the rapture. And a few people say, where are all those people that were talking about Jesus coming back? Where are they? I don't know. They probably freaked out when they saw the bombs drop, and they're probably in some cave in Montana. We'll see them sooner or later. Did you notice the world's on fire? Dismiss it away. It'll be an easy thing to explain away. Okay. So we hear this kind of a thing where he says, look, we can't just have our own westernized Christianity. We want to accept the idioms from all over the rest of the place. That's fine. I want to be able to embrace brothers and sisters. I don't care where they're from, but we will be singing out of the same hymnal. You get it? Maybe not even speaking the same language, but it's the same hymnal. You get the point? The gospel is the gospel, and it is the same no matter where you are in the world. It is the same truth. Okay, so where do they get this world? Where do these things thrive? Here's again, McLaren saying this, the Christian faith is understood as a story by a postmodern generation. That means the new coming out of the old this is the emergent Christianity. So it's the new coming out of the old. And it sees itself as a part of a developing storyline. Please pay very close attention to how he says this. To these people, the Bible is not an open and shut book. Remember, he's already said that. We're the ones that believe that, and he sees us as well-intentioned, sincere, and unnuanced, not very well-evolved. So here he would say, the Bible's not a closed thing. You can change the outcome. He believes that. By what we do in this world, we can change the Bible, and the ending of the Bible is an open thing, and we can amend it. By what we do. Notice what he says. Instead of breaking down the Bible and analyzing it in the, mo- as in the modern era, the way that we've done it all along, postmodern believers see the Bible stories as part of a bigger picture and a larger story. The Bible is seen by postmodern Christians as a chronological stories of God and creation. The story of Abraham, Moses, King David, the prophets, Jesus, Paul, and themselves as modern Christians. How we understand the faith as a story. The people in times past believed in those things as absolute. Here we, in these last times, again this is their eschatology. How we understand the faith as a story is in some ways relatively new territory because we just haven't practiced seeing our faith that way. Are you catching this, by the way? This is the rewriting of Christianity at its most fundamental level, which undermines the entire thing. Um, Before we move on, if you were tasked with bringing down a building or whatever else it is, are you going to try, if you want to bring it down, or better yet, I'll just give you the illustration. We've watched how they cave in buildings when they've outlived themselves. Do you notice that they don't try to take a wrecking ball to the top levels? What do they do? They blow it apart at the foundation and then everything collapses over it. So if you want to attack Christianity, don't attack Paul. Attack Genesis. Attack Revelation. Attack the fact that God could tell you about things before they ever happen. Cast doubt on its accuracy and its authority. That's the foundation of it. Attack that and you can recreate it in your own image. This is exactly what is being asked to be done here. So he says this, then understanding how our stories, this is a continuation, how these stories relate to other stories and then we figure out the role that we play in that story because it is not yet finished. Remember, he said the people in the times before, they were reading about Moses and Abraham and all those guys. But we see it as open-ended. So he's able to say these stories relate to other stories. We figure out what our role is because it's not finished yet. And yet, what do you read at the end of Revelation? It's a sealed thing. What do you read all the way in Proverbs? Don't add to the word of God lest he prove you to be a liar. Goodness. They're rewriting the ending of a book that says it is finished. Jesus gives that warning at the end of Revelation. Don't add to it. The, the revelation of that book is the summation of the faith. Don't add. So we get this. So that comes as a very motivating and exciting way to understand our faith. No, it is not. That is not motivating. It is not exciting when you finally realize what it ends to. Notice what he says. Emerging Christian leaders are interested in understanding the shift in culture and how it affects Christianity because it helps them grapple with the problem of making the faith relevant to a younger generation that has increasingly left the faith. Do you know what is being said there? As they're running out the door of the church, ask them what you can do to make them stay. Give them what they want rather than what they need. Read it. It's his own words. Now, if this was just some kooky guy that no one listened to, I wouldn't be here talking about him. But when Time Magazine can identify him as a top 25 evangelical on the planet, and he has hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of books in print, and they are on the shelves of pastors, look at where he did this. This was at Washington Forum at the National Cathedral back in, in 2008. 2008 he said this. Now, Rob Bell, I'm going to have to do this very quick. This gets into deconstructionism. I'm out of time. I haven't even got to the videos. Goodness. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, this book right here, you see where the, the title of the book at the bottom, Velvet Elvis? Velvet Elvis is a book that I own, and I read it myself, and I used it for research and wanted to hurt myself after I was done with it. Made me crazy. Velvet Elvis, when you look at the, the uh, title of it, it says Velvet Elvis repainting the Christian faith. How many of you guys have been down in New Mexico and seen Elvis on, on velvet on a picture? How many of you seen it? Okay. Did you notice that very, fe- very seldom do they look the same? Why? Because it's the artist's impression. I don't know, is he wearing a vinyl jumpsuit or is he wearing something with tassels or whatever? There's a, a million different Elvis impressions that you can put. And no one is better than any of the rest. That's the premise of this entire book velvet Elvis repainting the Christian faith so there is no standard because you can't say well mine's better than yours well who says that person over there likes mine better than yours you get it and people were selling this book in some Calvary chapels and they couldn't even tell by the title there's a problem here look at what he says Jesus at one point claimed to be the way the truth and the life what else did he say what did he say right after that I am the way the truth and the life No one comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't quote that part. Look at what he says. Jesus was not making claims about one religion being better than all the other religions. That's an argument that doesn't need to be made because Jesus didn't have to tell you. He was going to demonstrate the superiority of what he did because he, Jesus, the Son of God, died in your place. Do you know that in all of the religions that mankind has ever come up with, the God of those religions never told his creation that he loved them? That is unique to the God of the Bible. Unique, where he would say, I made you and I love you. And Paul would tell us in Romans 5.8, he has demonstrated that love and that while Jesus, or while we were still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. That is unique to Christianity rob who was seen as an evangelical who was celebrated in places he never should have been celebrated writes this book and says jesus was not making claims about one religion being better than all the other religions now listen to this when you read this do we all speak english in here okay i'm going to ask you as people who are proficient in english to try to explain to me what he just says so he says that completely misses the point the depth and the truth Rather, he was telling those who were following him that his way was the way to depth of reality. This kind of life Jesus was living perfectly and completely in connection and cooperation with God is the best possible way for a person to live. It is how things are. That is English, but it makes no sense. This is what a person does when he cannot make an argument. He just buries people in words. Jesus came and said some absolute things And Rob is a guy who doesn't believe in absolutes. You can find that in the very first chapter. He says that doctrines are not rigid. Doctrines are flexible. They must be flexible because if they're rigid and you ever find out one of them is wrong, then the whole wall falls apart. Incredible. Now, he kind of left the scene for a while, but now he's back. And the sad thing about it is when he went off of the scene, people picked right up where he left off. He used to be a pastor in Michigan. Okay. So, the postmodern worldview leads to this. If a postmodernist, like the guys that you've heard me quote, think about how easy it is to jump into this replacement theology. This is where they'll say all the promises for Israel because they rejected Jesus now belong to the church. That was the, that was the, the belief for 1900 years because Israel was gone from the land. They don't care enough about the scripture to say, well, now that they're back in the land, maybe we should re examine what we believe. But they don't do that. Here's another funny thing about it. They love to take all the promises to Israel. Isn't it weird that they never want the curses? Because they do some of the same stupid things that Israel did, but they never want to have to deal with the consequences. (laughs) Kind of one-sided. Well, it leads to anti-Semitism and pro-Palestinianism. I wish for you, I'm hoping you do this, find out how much of the church is pro-Palestinian and looks at Israel as the occupier and the oppressor. If you have been watching the news in the last few days, you know literally hundreds of rockets have come out of Gaza. Have you seen how it's being reported in the news? They indiscriminately fired. How many of you guys know when they leveled the things that they did, Israel, in Gaza, they told them in advance, get everybody out of that building, we're leveling it? That is not the same kind of quarter that the people in Gaza gave when they fired off their rockets because people died in this exchange in these last few days. And yet, much of the church has bought into the pro-Palestinian belief. The BDS movement, which is boycott, divestment, and sanctions, we've seen the devastation that that has caused inside some of the West Bank towns where the, the divestment, they ended up, there are some Israeli, how many of you guys have SodaStream? Does anybody have a SodaStream? You got one? I love mine. It's fantastic. You can turn regular water into fizzy stuff. It's awesome. They were. That's a, a, an Israeli company and they were operating in the West Bank. They pulled all of their operation out of, uh, outside of Bethlehem, I believe, and they moved it into Israel proper. Guess who got hurt by that, that move? The people in the West Bank. They were the highest paying jobs in the area from a Jewish company hiring Palestinians, quote unquote. Social justice or liberation theology, racial justice, environmental justice. I'm gonna have a moment to do this and then I'm gonna defer to Charlie and say what do you want me to do? How many of you have heard the, the word "social justice? Okay, The church is becoming incredibly engaged with social justice, and I'm going to have to rush through this, so I'm going to have to cut out some of this. but listen to this. How many of you know who Dennis Prager is? Mm. Okay.
1: It's loud. This is a hard initiative to make, but a couple weeks ago right in a Catholic Church over in Torrance. Three weeks ago, the deacon was given the homily, and he mentioned in the middle of a great homily the term, we must have social justice. What's my best comeback to them about that? Good, good question. You will obviously you all heard it. Uh, here is a rule that I learned oh, in my study of, uh, of communist societies. Whenever there is an adjective added to a, an important value-based noun. Uh, there's an agenda. There is democracy, not people's democracy. Whenever you had a people's democracy, you knew you didn't have democracy. Social justice. Ask all people who use the term, out of curiosity, what is the difference between social justice and justice? I, and I want to hear what answer they give. They don't like justice. Social justice, like environmental justice and a whole, all the other uh, uh, adjectives that are thrown in, are agenda-driven. There is justice and there is injustice. There is injustice and social justice. Social justice means left-wing equality. That's what it means. It is a substitute for the term equality. So there is no social justice if there are rich and poor. Rich and poor is, definitionally, social injustice. It's not injustice. That's why they know. They don't even know why they use the term. They won't know. I'm serious. They don't know why they don't like the term justice. But the answer, I, I'll tell them why they don't like it. Justice has no problem with their being rich and poor. Social justice has a problem with their being rich and poor. If the rich got rich justly, there is no problem with it. Here's a, my favorite biblical quote, one of my favorite. Do not favor the poor in judgment. It's book, book of Exodus. It is very tempting if Bill Gates and a poor guy come into your courtroom to favor the poor guy. That's social justice favoring the poor guy. (coughs) It's injustice to favor the poor guy. Get it? So social justice has nothing to do with justice. (laughs) Nothing. It distorts it in the name of the egalitarian ideal that uh, motivates the left.
0: That is one brilliant man, by the way. But if you read those chapters, uh, chapter 21 and 22, I believe that's where the law begins to be given at, in Exodus, he, he uses it both ways. Don't favor the rich, don't favor the poor, F- just go with where the, what is needing to be done. Adjudicate whatever comes before you rightly and, and do the right thing. That's what is in that particular part. And it's the first time that God gives law. So what you find, notice, did you hear how that thing started? I was in church, and a homily mentioned social justice. That's happening in more of the church than you can imagine, and they're trying to, what they see, right the wrongs that have been done. Now, first of all, that assumes that they know what is right and wrong. It assumes that they have the right information, and that they have the judicial ability to right that wrong. So I'm going to give you some examples of this, and we're just, we really are out of time. How many I'm going to ask you to do this again. This is your homework if you want to take it. If after you leave here and say, homework my foot, you're an idiot. I'm not listening to anything you have to say. I'm not looking at any of this stuff. And so um, if if you think that, wow, that's hurtful. I'm, so, I'm kidding. I'm joking. This is a group called the Wild Goose. The Wild Goose Festival. The Wild Goose Festival. When you look at what they advocate for, it's not just a small gathering of people. You will find, I don't know how many thousands of people attend this, but when you see how many people present at it, you will be shocked. Take a look at some of the people who are there and some of the things for which they advocate. It is the very liberal, progressive, political wing that's found an avenue into the church and total agreement. Now, if, again, this, go ahead and take a look at it, the Wild Goose Festival. They have their own website. You can look at the past ones. The sad thing is when you find out who is at it, here are your speakers just this year. Tony Campolo, Brian McLaren, Doug Paget. Does that name sound familiar, Doug Paget, to anyone? How many of you guys saw that there was a whole group of, quote, evangelicals, doing a thing in this last election cycle called flip the house or flip the Congress. Did you guys see that? The bus tour that was going around and meeting with churches and evangelicals? Doug Padgett was the spokesman for that. A quote pastor at Solomon's Porch up in Minneapolis. Ran for the Democratic side of, uh, of, for a seat in, in uh, Minnesota years ago and didn't, didn't win. But this is the guy who was out there. And what did they manage to do in the last election cycle? I can guarantee you this, the house that will be assembled after the first of the year will not represent your values. The last one didn't do such a great job either. I grant that. It's going to be a whole different world come 2019 January. Doug Paget was the guy that was always getting the press, and he was the guy giving the interviews. Doug Paget. And then, how many of you have heard of a lady named Jen, uh, Jen Hatmaker? How many of you guys go into LifeWay uh, Christian Bookstore? Okay. Next time you go in there, you'll find plenty of Jen Hatmaker stuff. You'll find plenty of it. She's got a DIY show with her husband. They flip houses and do design and all that kind of stuff. Why have her shown? You'll see in a moment. Shane Claiborne, pals around with Tony Campolo. How many of you guys have ever heard of a thing called Christ at the Checkpoint in Bethlehem? You know what it is? It's a pro-Palestinian meeting, and it is to try to talk about the oppression that Israel is bringing on the West Bank. If you've ever gone to Israel... And you've ever gone through bethlehem you know that what you see in the news is not what's reality on the ground i can show you palatial i have pictures on my computer that i took myself inside bethlehem of of if we lived in these places it would make us blush the kind of opulence but people living two doors down are living in just hobbles how does that happen if you have to ask the question okay shane claiborne is one of those guys that's there all the time. And then Amy Grant was a speaker at this. I can tell you this. If these people reached out to your pastor and said, Charlie, we'd like you to come and present at Wild Goose, he would say, I'm sorry, I've got to stay home and watch my grass grow. I cannot be associated with that stuff. There's no way that you would get him to go. I would never go to this. There's no possible way. Okay, so let me show you this. This is Jen Hatmaker. Um, I'm going to have to, for reasons of time, just kind of uh, give you the real quick version of it. But she put this up on her Facebook page, and it caused a whole rippling effect. And it was, I'll just read the first couple parts of it, the first couple of paragraphs. After our beautiful, beautiful event today, whatever it was, a woman walked up to me and said, I've been waiting my entire life for someone in church to say the words that you said today. It was so precious that, I, uh, that even as I type this, I'm crying. One thing I said, this is Jen talking, one of the things that I said is that it was high time that Christians opened their arms wide and their churches wide. They're uh, wide, uh, open wide their tables, wide their homes to the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. So great has our condemnation and exclusion been that gay Christian teens, that's oxymoronic by the way, are seven times more likely to commit suicide. That is tragic. But it is part of the tragedy that we have sold them the lie that you can be both things. That's part of the problem. And I'm not going to be seemingly insensitive, let me back up to what she says. Do we want to be receptive of people that they might hear the truth? Yes. Do we accept that truth inside of our churches? It is impossible. How do I know that? Think of what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 5, and the example that you had there was a young man who was having sexual relations with his stepmother. That's just the example of what was going on at Corinth it is a blanket thing that he calls it immorality and it cannot be tolerated why because we don't love the people no for the sake of the rest of the congregation there must be a standard if god calls it immoral it can't operate inside the church his love was for those people said turn them over and let them have the world in hopes that they come back and return so how do we handle the whole matter of homosexuality we want to be able to say to them the same way of a promiscuous person that is heterosexual. No difference, God views it no differently. Why we classify any group for different, different treatment is a sad state of affairs because the Bible is no longer relevant to these churches. Here's how we handle all of that. God has a standard for what is acceptable in, in that kind of an arena. It is between one man and one woman who, who are married bible's clear on this it's not for us to get into an argument this is what the bible teaches if people come in they're going to hear that message they will accept it or reject it they're going to feel welcome when they come in but we cannot tolerate that going on in the church without being discussed so this happened to be a big deal she gets a chance to give her answer and i'm going to have to end with this because we're over and i apologize we are over um Politically speaking, she was asked this question. Politically speaking, do you support gay marriage? From a civil rights and a civil liberties side and from just a human being side, any two adults have the right to choose who they want to love. That was her answer. Jen Hatmaker is seen as a leading authority for women's ministry. She's basically a cooler version of Beth Moore and Younger. You get the reference? Okay. So here she says, any two adults have the right to choose whom they want to love. There's a part, tr- partial truth to that. Yes, you can, but that doesn't mean that you go outside of the, the norms within Christianity. Christianity doesn't say you have to marry that woman or that man. doesn't say any such thing. God will give you that direction, but you see how she leaves it open-ended. So she's able to say, and they should be afforded the same legal protections as any of us. Because remember, the question was asked, do you support gay marriage? Her answer is people should be able to love whoever they want to and they should be afforded every other right as everyone else gets and so now she says from a spiritual perspective since gay marriage is legal in all fifty states our communities have plenty of gay couples who just like the rest of us need marriage support and parenting help and Christian community do you see that that is to say we want to make them comfortable in a lifestyle that God absolutely rejects we have to start from that point of view and say look personally This isn't personal. You may be the nicest people that would ever step foot in our church. Sincere, loving, caring. You'll do more around here in ministering to one another than anyone else. But here's the problem. You don't need to care about how I feel about your lifestyle. God has an opinion on this. Why don't we ask him how he feels about that? And why don't you allow him to change you as he's changed so many other people in this place. Whether heterosexual or homosexual, we have had to change the way that we interact when we come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not that there's an option here. But notice that she's giving an option and she's seen as mainstream Christianity. Look at her answers. So, um, look at what she says, the second part in the red. Not only are these our neighbors and our friends, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I know that this will get people really angry at me. If a person is, is an unashamed person who flaunts their sin with no repentance I don't care if they're again if they're promiscuous heterosexual same thing that means that you will take everything that God says not to do and say I don't care what God says this is what I want and I'm going to do it that is not the action of a born-again believer I don't care how they identify I don't care what they call themselves but if you're willing to say I know God has an opinion I don't care about his opinion but I want to be his that's inconsistent. That's inconsistent. So here's the last part. You mentioned faithfulness to God. Do you think that an LGBT relationship can be holy? I do. That's her first two words, I do. And my views are this is a very nuanced conversation. There's a the word nuance again. Remember what Brian McLaren said? People that would stand right on what the Bible says have no nuance. Do you see how the political left has made its way into the religious left? That was the premise, that was the very first panel in this whole presentation. Do you see how the world has made its way into the church and it is impossible to tell where one ends and the other one begins? Can you see it? I'm not making too much out of this because this is a lady who has an enormous amount of influence. She's more than a million followers, I believe, on her Twitter account and hundreds of thousands on her Facebook. Incredible amount. I have nowhere close to that and I'm on, I'm on social media. Man, nobody wants to hear what I got to say. After tonight, you may understand why. So here's the, the last question. What about uh, the other hot button issues? Where do you stand on abortion? Listen to this. Again, this is nuance here. I've always had a pro-life ethic, and I still do. So she's able to say that, but notice how quickly she changes the subject. But my pro-life ethic has infinitely expanded from just being simply against abortion or anti-abortion For me, pro-life includes the life of the struggling single mom who decides to have that kid, and they're poor. It means being pro-refugee. It means being pro-Muslim. My pro-life ethic, here's the funny thing about it, depending on what part of the world she's in, her pro-Muslim take would get her head removed because of the things she believes. My pro-life ethic, while still not in favor of abortion, and certainly not in favor of late-term abortions, has expanded. There's something incredibly disingenuous about a Christian community that screams about abortion but then refuses to support the very programs that are going to stabilize vulnerable, economically fragile families that decide to keep their kids. Some Christians want the baby born but they don't want to help out and help mama raise that baby. That is a lie. We support one at our church that ministers to those young ladies that find themselves pregnant, and they do other things uh, for support of, you know, they do ultrasounds and all the rest of it, free of charge. And when they talk to those young ladies, they will give them all of the information. If those young ladies need help getting those children adopted, they will help with that as well. And they are myriad throughout this country. What she has just said there is a straw man argument that has no merit whatsoever Part of the problem, and I'll make this the last statement on this, part of the problem is that the government has stepped in where the church used to be involved. And now the church has deferred to the government. And we see the fallout of it. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we are a remnant. If what I have said to you resonates with you and you would find yourself in agreement as much as you could grasp all the crazy stuff I just threw at you, you are in a very small group of people incredibly small much more so than you realize but these are the people who are shaping opinion in the church so what do we do about it not a whole lot there's not much that we can do because we have very little voice i expect that why because the bible tells me i read jesus's words when he says when the son of man returns will he find faith on the earth he knows the answer to that because he knows that there will be a remnant his question is one of being rhetorical and his statement is when I return, the number will be so small it's as though there isn't a faith on the earth. But for those who would say, God said it and I believe it. Amen?